0: you pray with me? Lord, as we come to your word, give us ears to hear that we might be encouraged, inspired, and challenged by your word to us. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with a love for you and your son, Jesus Christ. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Well, it's good to be with you all. Um, I feared there could be a chance that I wouldn't make it, uh, because while there's a couple weeks to go until the due date, my wife is now considered full term, so... (laughs) it's it's likely that it's still going to be a few weeks, but uh, we're waiting for it at any moment. And so as you can imagine, our house is full of anticipation and excitement. Uh, Katie was laughing at me yesterday as I was setting up the car seat and getting the stroller out. Uh, We've got our changing table ready. Uh, Winter's bought a stuffed animal for his new little brother to come. And so it's an exciting time as we're waiting uh, eagerly. And Katie, like many women in their third trimester, is ready to be done with pregnancy. (laughs) Uh, Not just because we're excited for baby, it feels like it's been a long time, not just the past eight months, but anticipating for even longer this this new new boy to come among us. But uh, baby's been kicking her, and moving, and making her uncomfortable, and pressing on her bladder, and... uh, it's not very fun and I get to watch her suffer through all of this uh, and it's a a lot and she's ready to be done and the end is in sight and I think sometimes that even makes the day-to-day even harder because we just want it to be over but before we can get there of course she has to endure the worst of it uh, and go through labor itself and contractions and the pain that that's going to bring I'm amazed that she endures all of this, and I remember when our first son was born, uh, I just had immense proud uh, feelings, pride in my wife for what she went through and what she was accomplished when she brought this new life. But the joy and excitement that comes with a new baby, with birth, with motherhood, all of that helps her to endure uh, the suffering and pains and discomforts of pregnancy all the way through the labor. I really believe that pregnancy and childbirth is a gift, a a miracle of God. From conception, through the way that she carries life within her, to the birth of a new child into the world. We can't create life ourselves. We're dependent on God in order to do it. Yet by his grace, we get to participate in this new act of creation, in this new life coming into the world. And so it's a miracle and a joy to behold. In our New Testament reading today, Paul uses this idea of pregnancy and the pains of childbirth, but the joy that comes with the birth of a child as a metaphor for the state of our fallen world and the resurrection and the new creation that we're waiting for. Here again from Romans chapter 8, verse 22 For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We know that the world is full of suffering, many challenges and difficulties that we face, and many people raise the question, why? Why do we suffer? Why do we face these things? And how do we make sense of them, and what are we to, to do in the midst of them? But for Paul, he uses this analogy that the suffering and pain that we face in this life is really like the, the pains of childbirth. They're contractions of a new creation that is yet to come. And so we endure the suffering and pain now in hope that a new life is coming in the resurrection. It's a beautiful metaphor for our world and the life as we know it and the life that we are waiting and longing for. But it's a difficult metaphor to embrace in the face of real suffering in the world. There are wars, Fires in Canada, flooding in states, disaster, disease, illness, all kinds of pain and suffering. And uh, probably all of us here know some version of suffering ourselves. The pain of illness or injury, grief of losing a loved one or broken relationships, all kinds of suffering. In the face of this, are we really to look at these things and say they are simply the pains of childbirth? Well, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it to Romans chapter 8. It's also found in the back of the bulletin. You can open there and follow along. We're going to dive into this passage and consider together what this means for us in the f- living in the midst of our fallen world. Our passage begins in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's noteworthy that at the beginning that Paul is not denying or minimizing suffering. If you know Paul's biography, he was very familiar with suffering. He was witness to the first martyrs of the church as people were killed for their faith in Jesus. He himself had been uh, persecuted socially. He had been accused falsely and brought before courts. He had been imprisoned. He had been beaten, suffered many things for the sake of his faith. And certainly the world was no easier in his time either. It was full of war, political injustice, poverty, disease. It was a difficult time. In the face of this, Paul does not deny or seek to avoid these sufferings. Rather, he says they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's reflecting on the resurrection here. That in the light of the resurrection the sufferings of the current age become more bearable. I've never uh, been through labor myself, of course, right, thankfully, but I hear from many women that contractions and childbirth is some of the most excruciating pain that they have to endure in this life. So why is it that so many women, my wife included, decide to get pregnant again and go through that suffering willingly? And even excitedly, knowing that they're going to have to endure great pain. It's because the joy and love of birth and motherhood, the gift that a child brings into a family, is so much greater than the pain and suffering that they endure during pregnancy. Katie actually said something really beautiful a couple weeks ago to me. She was having a particularly hard day. She hadn't slept very much, which is fairly normal these days because of the discomfort. And she was having a lot of pain, and baby was kicking her, and in the midst of uh, this rough day, she had to work uh, a full office day as a midwife. But she said that in the midst of all of it, despite the discomfort baby was causing her, she said, I'm already so full of love for this baby. I haven't even met him yet, and I already care so deeply for him and love him. And it doesn't negate the difficulties she was having that day or the pains, but the joy of that love helped her to get through her day. That's the type of thing that Paul is saying here. That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we're facing suffering in our own lives— or when others come to us with their suffering and their questions of why is this happening and what are we to do, I don't think we should minimize or deny suffering. We shouldn't try to avoid it. Rather, what we need is a greater imagination of the joy that's to come before us in the resurrection. Most of the time in our culture, when people think about resurrection, they think of this caricature of heaven as this place up in the sky with pearly gates, and they think that when, when we die, we're going to become angels, and we're going to sit on a cloud and play a harp and sing songs to God in this sort of like 24-7, never-ending church service. And to a lot of people, that doesn't really sound joyful. Um, so many people in our culture, sadly, would rather ride the highway to hell, as the rock song says, than experience this version of heaven. But the Bible's idea of resurrection is so much greater than that. In the Bible, resurrection is described not as an ethereal existence, but a new heavens and a new earth, where heaven and earth come together and join together, where the city of God will come to be amongst humanity. And the city is described as one where the streets are paved with gold. And there's rivers of flowing water and beautiful gardens. It's a place of abundance and beauty and life and joy. And the Bible says that in that city there will be no more pain or crying or sadness, suffering or death. If we think about and imagine that sort of new creation, that sort of resurrection... Think about what it must mean to have a city where there's no suffering. It means that we're not going to hurt one another anymore. That broken relationships will be restored and we will live in a place where we love and support and care for one another. Where we're not lonely or anxious or depressed. Where life will be meaningful and fulfilling. Where there will be wealth and abundance. If we think about that sort of resurrection, if our minds can grow in our imagination of what that new life would be like, then the sufferings of our present time will somehow seem much less great compared to that glory. I think part of the problem is that often when we think about salvation, resurrection, the gospel, our focus is usually too narrow. We often come to the Bible with the question, what happens to me after I die? And so the gospel is that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. We can have a right relationship with God, and when we die, we will go to be with him. That is true and beautiful, but again, the Bible is so much greater than that. Let's continue in our text in Romans 8, verse 19. Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice he doesn't say, We wait with eager longing for salvation. Or we wait to escape from this world and go off to heaven. What he says is, The creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. The biblical idea of salvation is not just that you and I will be forgiven and restored, but that the whole creation will be redeemed and restored and brought to a new glory, that the earth itself will be remade to a place that is full of beauty and abundance without suffering or death. Consider the creation account in Genesis that we read some of today. God created the world. He made Adam and Eve humanity to be in his image and he taxes them with caring for the earth. He places them in a garden, and it's, it's the job of humanity that we're supposed to tend after the garden, that we're supposed to create flourishing and life to go out into the world that God has created to continue his project of creation. But when we fail, when Adam and Eve sin, it not only introduces sin and death to humanity and us, But creation itself suffers. Consider again the words that we heard this morning. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 17, God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it should bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of our sin and failure to be the people that God created us to be, we brought death and suffering into the world itself that the earth and the world itself are cursed and they too, like us, are waiting for restoration and salvation. And so Paul says that the creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for humanity to be what God intended so that we would care for the earth and cause flourishing and abundance rather than death. And so the gospel is good news not just for us, but the whole world. So Paul continues in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul's use of the word futility there is an interesting one. Um, not one uh, Futility is not a word that I use in everyday language. It's the same word that comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. If any of you know or have read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's kind of a challenging and uh, different book of the Bible, shall we say, a bit somber. The wise teacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us that we can't find ultimate meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. That life under the sun, as he describes it in Ecclesiastes, is one of suffering and death. And so he uses this word futility. Often it's translated vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It could be translated as meaningless. 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 Life is meaningless. Life is is short and hard and full of suffering, and then we die. And the things that we enjoyed and worked hard for are lost. And so he says that the world is futile. The word itself could be translated as breath or vapor. The idea is it's like an air, a mist, that's here and gone in an instant. And the summary, I think a summary of the book of Ecclesiastes, the word could be translated as like chasing after the wind. We're looking and longing for this thing, but we can't grasp it or hold on to it. It escapes us, and so life is futile. And Paul says that because of humanity's failures and sins, that the earth itself has been subjected to this state, that the creation itself has become futile and meaningless. Because It is longing and waiting for the sons of God to be who God intended, to be the image of God, to care for each other and creation. And so creation is waiting and longing for its salvation to come, for God to restore it, that there would be abundance and flourishing and life, that things would not be meaningless, but rather flourish and be abundant. And so we get back to the metaphor we started with in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together and the pains of childbirth until now. It's interesting that Paul says until now. Things haven't gotten much better since Paul's day, right? We look out and we see an earth that's struggling. We have heat waves right now in Texas and flooding and we just came out of a pandemic. And wars, things are hard. So why does Paul say that the creation has been groaning in childbirth pains until now? Paul's reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus in this passage. That in the midst of a suffering world, Jesus came and lived as humans were meant to live. If we look at the life of Jesus, it is a life of flourishing and abundance. He gives life wherever he goes. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He gives food and wine. He brings joy to those who know him. And after his death, God raised Jesus and gave him a new body, a body which will not grow old or suffer pain or die again. When we see the resurrected Jesus, we get a taste of what new creation will be like. Jesus is a first fruit of resurrection here and now in the midst of a suffering world. Just as I said that in the resurrection, it'll be heaven and earth coming together. We see the same in Jesus's resurrection. He has a physical body, right? They can see him. They can feel him and touch him. He eats meals with them. He can, he can taste and eat and digest. And yet at the same time, it's a spiritual body, He can seemingly walk through walls and show up out of nowhere. And now we know that he's ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory in heaven. And yet at the same time, in another way, Jesus is here present with us now so that we can know him and experience him in this life. And so the resurrection of Jesus is like a first fruit of new creation here and now in the midst of our time. Paul goes on in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul is saying in this passage is that Jesus' resurrection gives us hope that the sufferings in this life are not meaningless and futile, but they are like labor pains leading to a new life, a greater, joyful, loving creation that's waiting for us. And that we now who believe in Jesus are also first fruits of that new creation. He says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. When Jesus ascended, he gave his disciples the Holy Spirit that has been given to us as well to live as Jesus lived. And the more we live out that faith and grow in what Paul describes elsewhere as the fruit of the Spirit, and we grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness as we care for one another, as we care for the earth and creation, as we live abundant lives, then we are like a first fruit of new creation living in the midst of a suffering and fallen world. Our Christian faith is not just about, although it is about, but not just about having a right relationship with God through Jesus so that when we die, we might go to heaven. The Christian faith is about being a first fruit of new creation and living out the resurrection life here and now in the midst of a world that desperately needs it, that longs and waits for salvation and restoration to come. But of course it's important to say that Paul just says we're like first fruits. We're not yet the harvest. We are still waiting. We're not going to perfectly live out uh, our lives like Jesus lived out. I'm sure you all are well aware of that as you struggle with your own failings and shortcomings. We are still waiting and longing for our full redemption. Adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so Paul concludes in verse 24 and 25, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I work in hospice. uh, In my my current role, I don't get to visit patients uh, very much at all. But I have visited with many Christians who are facing life-limiting illness. And many of them have many pains and sufferings. And many of them have faced many losses and grief. Yet for some Christians that I have met, their anticipation of the resurrection gives them a joy and a spirit of fresh air that many other patients don't experience. When many people face the end of life, it brings up a lot of fear. For many, it brings up guilt or regrets. But for some Christians, their anticipation of the resurrection life gives them hope that helps them to endure the sufferings of their illness with patience and peace and even joy in the midst of their hurt. Because they'll tell you that they know that someday soon they'll get to meet their Savior face to face. That the faith that they've had throughout their life will come to fruition. And they'll get to experience a new life after death. A life that is more full of joy and love and glory than anything they experienced. And so in the light of that resurrection, their current illness and suffering seems pale in comparison. And even though that they are dealing with so many pains and aches, you go and visit them and they smile and they light up and they're full of a life that's hard to explain outside of this hope of new creation. Friends, we don't need to wait until the end of life to live in the midst of that hope. That's what our gospel and our lesson is teaching us today. Not to minimize or avoid or deny the suffering and pain in this world, but to endure it in hope of new creation. To live in anticipation of that glory such that our current lives are filled with love and joy that others see as a first fruit of new creation. I've said this to you before in a sermon, but I think it bears repeating we live in a time that is desperate for hope we're facing many challenges on our earth today i don't think anyone can deny that uh it's a time hard feels like a hard time to be alive and to be in our country with the many challenges and divisions and sufferings that we face and our world is looking for a reason to hope and many people have given up that hope The Bible is calling us to be a people of that hope, to be the first fruit of a new creation living in the midst of a suffering and dying world. Let us pray that God would increase our imagination of the glory of that new creation, that our lives would reflect that here and now. Would you pray with me? Lord, I give you thanks for our pregnancy and the new life that you're bringing to my family. And I thank you for the endurance you've given Katie as she goes through this pregnancy and the pains and discomforts that she's felt. Lord, I give you thanks for new life and new creation, and I pray that you would give us a vision of that greater new life and creation that's yet to come in the resurrection that you would instill in us an imagination to see its glory and to live out the hope of the resurrection in our life here and now in the midst of a world that desperately needs us. So I pray that you'd send your spirit upon these people and this your congregation, that you'd help us to grow in the fruit of the spirit and live that hope out here in the west shore of Cleveland. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.